This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. In this uh, celebration of St. Thomas of Villanova, uh, the, the gentleman who this university is named after, we come together as a group of people to recognize our need to do things, uh, not only for ourselves, but more importantly for those around us. And so there's a whole series of events over the next couple of days to help us reflect on how it is that we are called to be peacemakers in the world that we live in, as well as to be people who serve the needs of others. And in light of the loss of lives in the terrorist attack in the mall in Kenya, uh, and since our speaker is from Kenya, I would like to take a moment to just ask us to offer a prayer for the victims and for their families and for an end of terrorist attacks within our world. So let us just take a moment to pray. We lift our hands and our hearts in prayer for the victims of violence, especially for the people of Kenya, and for those who mourn the loss of family and friends. Lord, you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Help us to establish justice and truth as the lasting foundations of peace. Lord, you bestow on us your gift of peace and beckon us to shower that peace on others. Give us the hands to reach out for peace shape our minds with attitudes of peace, and lift our voices to speak words of peace, shape our work to be works for peace, and help us build the peace that all nations need to experience. Amen. I want to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Craig Whelan, the Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs, and for his work in putting this lecture together for us this evening. I also want to thank our speaker tonight, Chris Mumba, Mumbaru, Mbaru, got it, okay. Um, I'm very excited that Chris is the lecturer tonight, and particularly as we begin this celebration of the university's mission and heritage. St. Thomas of Villanova tells us, if you want God to hear your prayers, hear the voice of the poor. And if you wish God to anticipate your wants, provide those of the needy without waiting for them to ask you. Education is critical for the success of justice and stability in our country and around the world. Yet access to education can be fleeting and frustrating for so many people. Chris will share with us tonight his story as a, as a benefactor of the good of one person can do and the lessons this can teach us about changing the world in which we live in. Big change can come from very small gestures. An idea that we embrace here as we seek to ignite change on campus and within our community. I look forward to Chris's remarks and to the conversation that it will gener generate. And after he speaks tonight, um, we're going to open it up for some questions. So please, don't all go running out of here. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to invite a um, sophomore undergraduate from Villanova School of Business, Agnes Makuya, to introduce our speaker tonight. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to begin by thanking you for being here as we commence the eighth annual celebration in honor of the Augustinian Bishop, St. Thomas of Villanova. My name is Agnes Mukuyer, and I'm a sophomore in the business school. I was born and raised in Kenya, and I'm privileged to have the opportunity to introduce tonight's speaker, who happens to be a fellow countryman. The current version of our annual St. Thomas of Villanova celebration was inaugurated eight years ago upon the presidency of Father Peter Donahue. The intent is to celebrate the spiritual, academic, and service life of the Villanova community. Tonight's lecture is focused on creating an opportunity for our community to examine the, an important and timely issue. We are privileged to have our speaker help us do just that in his presentation, a small act, how one small deed can make a world of difference. There is a lot that can be said about our speaker tonight. At a global level, I could speak about his 20 years involvement in human rights work with organizations such as Amnesty International 
and global rights. I could also speak of his role as a trainer for human rights activists and his participation in peacekeeping missions. I could also speak of his work in protecting victims of mass human rights violations such as genocides. He is currently in charge of the anti-discrimination section of the United Nations Human Rights Agency based in Switzerland. He is responsible for conducting research on discrimination and intolerance. This is a clear demonstration of our speaker's passion to create equal opportunities for all. But those are just facts about the man. Allow me a moment to speak about him. As a child, he was a recipient of a direct scholarship from a Swedish lady named Hildbach. With Bach's support, our speaker successfully completed his primary school education and went on to earn degrees from the Nairobi University and the Harvard Law School. The opportunity to make something out of his life would have ended if not for a stranger's small act of kindness. Inspired by his own experience and in honor of his benefactor, he founded the Hildbach Education Fund in Kenya. Our speaker's life story goes a long way to show us the ripple effect small acts of kindness can have. A small act, a HBO produced documentary that chronicles our speaker's search for his benefactor was nominated for the best documentary during the 2011 Emmy Awards and has won several awards in the film industry. Since the film's premiere, more donations have been made to the Hildbach Education Fund. The speaker's benefactor act of kindness has grown from one child to a village-wide program and as we speak to a nationwide program. It is my great pleasure to introduce a human rights advocate, a filmmaker, a fellow Kenyan, and the eighth annual St. Thomas of Villanova Day speaker, Mr. Chris Mburu. As we say it back at home, Karibu Villanova. Good evening, everybody. Well, I'm uh, very glad and uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here with you tonight. Um, all the way from uh, Africa, actually what um, my colleague uh, did not mention probably because I did not um, tell her is that um, I'm actually currently working on a project in Rwanda. So I'm actually based in Rwanda right now, although my organization uh, headquarters are in Switzerland. I am uh, working on a project there where we are training uh, judges and prosecutors on how to implement human rights uh, commitments that uh, the government of Rwanda has entered into at the international level. So that's what I'm doing. So I bring you greetings from Africa. I just arrived uh, um, from there and I'll be going back there next, this weekend. Um, and um, today, tonight I'll be talking to you about some of the challenges that I faced in that continent, which is where I grew up uh, in Kenya. Uh, but before that, I just wanted to uh, say how uh, pleased I also am to be uh, introduced here by a fellow uh, Kenyan who is actually here on um, a program uh, that is uh, organized by an organization that we have a lot of respect for, which is called Zawadi, which is also a, a service organization doing a lot of good work. And uh, the Hildebach organization foundation that I had and uh, the Zawadi um, Foundation have a very close uh, collaboration. And we have always heard about the, the wings they give to their girls. And uh, for me to be introduced here tonight by one of those wings, um, I'm very delighted. And this is something that I'll take back and, um, and uh, share with the people back home that this is working. Our Kenyan stars are making it out here. So thank you very much. <clears throat> but I, I'm also um, very happy to have been introduced and to have met uh, Father Peter and to have him uh, introduce me. Uh, this is uh, quite for tutors. I did not expect that it was going to be a Catholic priest who was going to <laughs> be introducing me. And that is because I also, uh, part of my history, you know, that's why I'm thinking. There's a, I have a friend who has invented this theory that is called the Tanner theory, T-A-N-A. It means there are no accidents. And it's basically things like this. You know, I come out here to Villanova when I got this invitation 
which was organized by um, an agency that uh, you know does speaking arrangements for me. I had no idea where it was. I had no idea who I was going to be meeting. Little did I know that I was going to be introduced by my fellow Kenyan and that uh, the institution is headed by a Catholic priest. And the story I'm going to tell about the, um, the priesthood is that I was trying to be a priest myself at one point. I joined the seminary when I was very young in Kenya. Uh, I grew up in a very Catholic um, family. And um, you know, my mother always uh, told me, you know, you need to consider joining priesthood. You need to know if you have a calling in that direction. And so I joined the seminary, and you know, I was an altar boy in uh, in in my village, and that actually gave me um, the Catholic Church actually gave me and my family um, a lot of comfort when we were growing up because we were very very poor. Uh, but the one stable thing about our lives was the Catholic Church, how we used to go to Mass and how the, um, the mainly Irish priests, at that time we didn't have African um, people who had become priests yet, but the Irish priests were really exceedingly kind to us. Um, sometimes we didn't have enough to eat, they would invite us to the parish, we would go out there and eat, and by the time I was 12, I had made up my mind that I wanted to be a priest. And I spoke to the priest, um, uh, an Irish man called Father Collery, and he told me, why don't you join the junior seminary? It's called Queen of Apostles in Nairobi. And so I joined the junior seminary, and um, I actually spent four years there. And um, it was a very, very important uh, part of my life. Um, and actually, I, I believe a lot of uh, the work that I do today um, was shipped up during this period because we were taught to love. We were taught to share. We were taught to um, express God's will in our deeds and to, 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 to spread out um, our, our work and make sure that uh, we were the images of God uh, in our work. So it's very interesting to come here all the way after that whole history um, to be introduced here tonight by uh, somebody who is very familiar with that. So um, basically, I think um, you probably know a little bit about um, um, my story. I was um, born in Kenya, um, and I was born in a village uh, called Mitahato. It's a small village in central Kenya, um, and everybody was poor. There was not a single family that did not have severe difficulties. Um, when I was growing up. And the children that I grew up, my, all my friends, you know, came from families where they, you know, we did not have electricity, we did not have running water, we did not have a library in the schools, we did not have, you know, my school did not have windows. Um, you know, we only had uh, a few teachers who got very little by way of salary. I did not wear shoes until I was about 10. So it was, the poverty that you know you 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 really can talk about um, the one that you hear about. I really experienced it when I was coming here tonight and I was dressing up. Some of these things that you Americans take very for granted. You know, you you get up in the morning, you 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 wear a dress and you 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 know tie up your shoes. Um, when I'm lacing up my shoes, I sometimes take a moment to think. This is Chris wearing shoes. It is that important because I remember all those years in which I was, um, I was growing up in poverty and um, I, I, when I go back to the village, I see that all the time. And this is actually the most distressing part of it, that it still continues. But um, I'm here tonight to talk about um, what we can do about that. I'm here to you know, bring not a depressing message but a hopeful message to figure out what it is that we can do, what kind of service we need to embark on to make sure that we can lift these people out of poverty. Um, the story uh, in which I was lifted out of poverty was dramatic. I don't know how it happened, but since I met my friend who has this Tanner theory, I now know that it was meant to happen. This woman um, who lived in Sweden, 
She was called, she's called Hilda Back. She heard about my plight. She was uh, a school teacher and she uh, participated in a program that helped Kenyans, uh, Kenyan kids who could not um, make it in school because at that time, elementary school um, was charged. You had to pay school fees. So a lot of the kids did not um, manage to finish primary school because they just did not have money. The families had no money. Uh, the few families that had uh, money could only pay for their kids but not for the other kids. So most of us were actually hoping to to, to work in the plantations. The best that I hoped for myself, uh, the village that I came from uh, was surrounded by um, coffee plantations, which uh, coffee is a major cash crop in Kenya. So <clears throat> what I saw my mother doing when I was growing up was she was picking coffee and getting paid for it. She was picking coffee in the coffee plantations, and that's what everybody else did. There used to be a truck that used to be parked outside the village um, at six o'clock in the morning, and people would get on it, and uh, they would go out into the coffee farms, and they would pick coffee for the whole day, and you know they would come back in the evening with a few coins in their pockets to put some um, food on the table for their for their families. So it was a very very difficult um, existence. My mother was a very, very strong woman, and um, she really wanted to ensure that her kids uh, managed to get an education, although she could not obviously afford. So again, the Catholic Church came out very handy for some of my brothers. You know, she would go out there and talk to the priests and the nuns and, and, and really try to get them support. And um, for me, it was uh, exceptionally difficult. Um, she had to take me uh, with her to the market. She was a market woman. And um, she was very, very determined, but I just could see that it was becoming very, very difficult. So she hears about this project that is run by the Swedes, uh, the, 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 the Swedes uh, who had come to Kenya and seen the plight of children who were unable to finish school, and they felt touched by this. And so they said, well, give us names of kids who need support, who we can support. And so my mother gave out uh, my name, and luckily I was one of the lucky few who were selected for sponsorship. So this woman uh, called Hilda Back decides to uh, sponsor this uh, Kenyan girl, Kenyan boy, and um, immediately I start getting uh, presents, I start getting, I wear my first pair of shoes, which came from Sweden, and this is a woman that I did not know. So when we talk about service tonight, when we talk about doing small acts. We are also going to be talking about anonymous gen generosity. When you feel that there's a need out there, you just reach out and support, even when you do not actually see the person face to face. So this woman uh, decided to help me and um, it's because of that generosity that I was able to go through uh, primary school. It was because of that generosity that I was able to go through secondary school because she also paid for my secondary school. And after that, she had basically put me on the path. And what happened was then I um, found my way to the university and did a degree in law and then uh, ended up at one of the best institutions of higher learning in the United States, Harvard Law School. So you can, what I could not believe the day I landed at Harvard uh, Law School was how this little boy who did not wear shoes in the village and who did not have electricity or running water could end up at Harvard Law School. It was not because I did it myself. It was because somebody else lifted me out of the throes of poverty and gave me that opportunity. And that I, was, I was really touched by that. And when I, the day I graduated from Harvard, which was exactly 20 years ago today, um, I decided that you know, I needed to do something to take this forward. I said, this woman did not have to do this. She just did it out of the generosity of her heart. And I told myself, the best way of honoring her for what she had done 
was not to give her money or give her anything because she doesn't need it. The best way to do that was to start an initiative in my own country where I can help children who are in the same situation I once was. And that is how I started my foundation. And I thought when I was starting the foundation, what a more appropriate name to give the foundation than the name of the woman who had lifted me out of this poverty. So I named the foundation the Hildeback Education Fund. And the Hildeback Education Fund um, started by supporting uh, young children who are um, struggling to make it through primary school in my village. And then, uh, you know, we helped uh, quite a number of kids and um, people started hearing more about this. And then an American woman um, who uh, is called Jennifer Arnold, who uh, is a filmmaker in Hollywood, heard about it. And she called me up and she said, I would like to do a documentary on this story, the, the, the story of Hilda Back. Um, and uh, the fact about Hilda Back was that all the time she was supporting my education, I never met her. She was just sending the money. She was just sending letters. I remember getting very excited as a small boy, uh, receiving these letters from this, uh, this woman that I had never met. And uh, at, at that time, I didn't read much English. So my, my uh, relatives would read, it, would read the letters out for me loudly. And I was so, so excited. So I had always longed to meet this woman. And when I completed uh, my studies at Harvard and started this foundation, I decided that I was finally going to try and get to meet her. And this was 30 years later. And so I um, managed to track her down in uh, uh, Sweden and um, through the embassy in Nairobi. And we managed to invite her to Kenya to come and see the, 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 the fruits of her generosity. By the time I um, reestablished contact with her, she was 80 years old. And she was just sort of forgotten about this. You know, these are people, again, that's an, and that's an important thing because she had given out without the expectation of getting back. And that is a very important message when you're in service. Because when you give out, you give what we call in law an out and out gift without the expectation of getting back. And that's when you actually get back. Hilda Back heard from me after so many years, she could not believe it. She thought it was a prank. And, and, and in the end, she was just really, really thrilled that this had happened to me. And so we have established, uh, you know, she has become my sort of my second mother. I would encourage you all to watch this film because this, this um, filmmaker really did a good job of telling this story. And the story becomes even more complex because, uh, and more interesting, because it turns out then, uh, and that's a fact that I didn't know when um, this woman was helping me, it turns out that she was a Holocaust survivor herself. Her parents had died in uh, the Holocaust. And they had decided to rescue their children by sending them to Sweden. They, had, they were originally German, obviously, Jewish uh, Germans. And the parents had decided, you know, the situation had become so untenable in Germany that they should rescue their children. And they sent them through something called Kinder Transport to um, Sweden. And Hilda never saw her parents again. And she went to Sweden and uh, decided that she was going to just help kids, help people. And uh, that's just how she started doing it. And she started working in a kindergarten and started working in an elementary school. And so uh, even in helping me, she was just thinking about also the help that she had gotten. So she was a beneficiary of a small act. And then she herself decided to carry this forward by doing a small act, helping um, a child in Kenya. And that child decided to do a small act by helping other children. And what has happened to my foundation since the film came out, because this woman was able to do a very, very compelling uh, film, and you can all um, uh, find it on the web, and I, I, I think it's, it's available even in uh, public libraries. Um, 
what happened was that when the film came out, it, um, it, it, this was at Sundance Film Festival, it became so uh, popular that instantly my foundation uh, started getting all this anonymous support. We, you know, Americans were just sending us money, $10, $20. And before we knew it, the foundation that I had started out of a, out of a, a United Nations salary uh, in, in my back pocket, you know, became a sort of a, a multi-million um, uh, dollar uh, um, budget foundation. And now we are able to help a lot more kids. This year, as I speak with you, we have 400 kids uh, enrolled in secondary school. Now we are helping secondary school because that is... Uh, and so Hildeback has since become um, one of the closest members of my family. It turns out that she did not have kids. Uh, so basically, I now uh, count as her only child. And so it's, uh, it's, it's been a very uh, exciting uh, journey for me because uh, I now have two mothers. I have my own mother, who is still alive and who, who loves Hilda very, very much. And I have Hilda. So I keep calling her my uh, second mother. And um, now she's uh, 90. I'm actually in two weeks I'll be... Uh, celebrating her 91st birthday with her in Sweden. Her 90th birthday was a huge event last year, and we flew her again to Kenya, and it was one of the biggest events in the country, and um, it was presided over by the chief justice of the country and was all over the media. So uh, this woman, because of the film and because of the uh, small act that she, she, she undertook, has actually uh, found a lot of gratification. But we do not give because we want to find gratification. And that is what I want to encourage uh, you all, especially uh, some of you who are students who are thinking about their future careers and thinking about what you would like to do in the, in the years ahead. Um, we really want to encourage uh, young people to consider careers in philanthropy, to consider careers in service of others. And um, the way I um, came across this uh, myself, uh, you know, I, I studied law and then I decided I wanted to focus on international human rights law. So I started working with human rights organizations like Amnesty International, uh, another one called Global Rights, and uh, the Kenya Human Rights Commission, which is, uh, which is in Kenya. Um, and then I later on joined the United Nations. So there are a lot of opportunities now. It doesn't mean that you will be poor when you, you, you follow a career of giving. There's actually now a structure, a professional career structure, where you can actually give and get back. You know, you, you're doing a good job, but you're doing great service. And that is what I like about my job. It gives me gratification, gives me a fairly good salary, but it also enables me to go out there and touch other lives in exactly the same way my life was touched. So when we talk about service and when we talk about the, 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 the service that um, Thomas of Villanova um, undertook, we are talking about doing simple acts, carrying out simple gestures in your life that are aimed at supporting others. It is very important to think about your own family. It is very important to think about your own friends and all that. But I think it's very, very important to think about people out there who you may not know, who are living in, um, in a life of need and find ways uh, where you can, um, you can help them. The Hilda Back story, obviously, is not the only story uh, about small acts of giving. In fact, since I uh, started doing this work, I've discovered uh, it's been very exciting for me, uh, the journey, because uh, through this story and th now through the film and through all the lectures that I continue to do since the emergence of this film, um, I am meeting um, a lot of people with more interesting stories of how small acts changed lives and how small gestures can change societies. A lot of the times when you are faced with immense need, human beings tend to get overwhelmed. 
by the immensity of the need. You go to Africa and you see lots of poor kids. You see, you know, everybody needs something. It's very, very easy. And it's very human. It's very easy to say, what can I possibly do? And do nothing. A lot of us, 90% of the people who face this kind of situation say, there's nothing I can do. And whatever I do anyway is going to amount to a drop in the ocean. It's useless. And that's the mistake that 90% of us make. We need, and this is the, the reason this film was called a small act, it was taken out of a statement that I gave, was when you are uh, overwhelmed by this need, what you need to tell yourself is that I cannot save the whole world. I cannot address all the problems that there are in this world. I cannot save all the children who need an education in this world, but I can do one act. I can help one child. Hilda back helped one child and stepped back and let the others help different, uh, different children. And because Hilda back undertook this gesture, um, uh, many hundreds of Kenyan children are now able to get an education. We have lots of these stories going on. I'll tell you the story of a boy uh, in Rwanda called Morris. Morris Ujeneza was born in far greater poverty than I was. He had nothing to eat and the situation was so bad for him that he and his mother had to leave their home and go into the streets to beg. And so he was in the streets and he in the streets of uh, Rwanda and this was the aftermath of the genocide, very dangerous uh, time and he was begging out in the streets and he had absolutely no future and he had no hope for the future and he did not have any reason to have any hope in the future. But some American friends, some American, they weren't friends then, they are friends now, but American people who worked there um, saw what uh, Morris was going through and they encouraged him to go to school. And of course as a street boy he was wondering, you know, what are they telling me, what, how can I possibly be helped? And finally he agreed and accepted their offer to go to school. He got himself uh, a primary education, a secondary education. Three weeks ago, Morris, who is now living in my house in Kigali, graduated with a law degree from the National University of Rwanda. Morris, who used to be a street child, is now going to be a lawyer he wants to be a human rights lawyer and he wants to be a defender of children. Because of this simple gesture that was undertaken uh, by those who helped Morris, one of whom, again, I believe in this theory called the Turner theory. There are no accidents. Because can you imagine that a few days ago, just as I was preparing to come for this lecture, Morris calls me and tells me, one of the people who helped me, I hear you're going to America. One of the people who helped me is, um, is still living there, and her name is Caroline, and maybe you should look her up. And I thought, is he crazy? Does he know how big the United States are? And so I called him and I said, Morris, I'm going to a place called Philadelphia. Can you ask your friend where she is? I get an email from the friend saying, I live in Philadelphia. She's here tonight. <laughs> now, do you believe in my Turner theory? It's actually not mine, but do you believe in that theory? There are no accidents. 
How could it be that, you know, I'm coming all this way and all these things are falling in place? You know, all of a sudden, my whole seminary life is brought back to life. All of a sudden, you know, my whole Kenyan life is brought uh, to life. And then the whole Moses story, which I really want to write a book about. And the star of the show. <laughs> she's, a, she's also a, a, a media person, so I think she can do a much better job in doing the story. But it's things like this that change lives. And it's things like this that change your life. Now, and that's the other thing that I've discovered since my years in philanthropy. My mother, poor as she was, full of wisdom. The, all the knowledge and the wisdom that I received at Harvard Law School was nothing compared to what I received from my illiterate mother. Every word she says is like a, is like a major existential dictum. <laughs> and she could say something very simply, and then you think about it. And then you think, the more I think about it, the deeper it gets. <laughs> Listen to this. She tells me something very simple, and I'm thinking, oh, mom, you can come up with something better. She says, the more you give, the more you get. I thought it was like, oh, that is not a very deep thing. <laughs> it's actually one of the deepest things because of how true it is. And that is why when we are thinking about giving, a lot of the people when they are confronted with the idea of giving, they think, oh, that's going to, to, to leave me with less. But in actual fact, I've discovered, and I'm sure as uh, Thomas of Villanova discovered, the gratification you get out of giving, the returns you get out of giving, the the, 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 the comfort that you get in knowing that another person's life has been changed because of your small act. No words can describe that. So, there goes my mother's wisdom. The more you give, the more you receive. I've talked with a lot of philanthropists. I have a, a because of this uh, film, we got a big funder, a big uh, billionaire who, sang, who funds uh, our foundation. And basically he tells me he cannot get rid of his money. <laughs> the more he tries to give, he goes back to the bank and looks at the little investments he's made, a lot has come back. So in fact, he left his job because he, he sold his company and he's 63 years old and he said, I, I don't want to do you know, be employed again. I just want to give away what I've made. But for four years, he has been unable to give away anything. He keeps writing checks, but the little investments he's making keep sending back because there's an invisible power that is trying to tell you, you're doing good, so I will give you more so that you can continue doing good. And that is a wisdom that a lot of us do not... Um, quite understand because it's not evident, but it is a wisdom that is there. Ever since I started the Hildeback Education Fund, I get breaks in my life that I can't explain. I, you know, write my little report like everybody else, and I receive a letter, you know, a, a memorandum saying, you've been promoted. I do a little thing like this, and, and then they tell me, oh, you, you, you've done this, so we're going to, uh, we have won this, uh, this money because of what you have done. A lot of things, a lot of bricks that I get that I can't really explain. But I think it is very, very clear that the more you give, that's why that dictum continues to be deep. A lot of people say when you stretch out your hand to give, people are afraid of stretching out the hand to give because they fear that what they have will disappear. But they don't know that unless you stretch out that hand, you will not receive. So a lot of people actually receive more by stretching out that hand. 
Philanthropy has changed me in the same way it has changed our big benefactor. A lot of the people who do philanthropy, who do uh, this kind of service, will tell you, no, it's not about the children I'm helping. It's about me. I'm getting more out of this. A lot of people think, oh, you're giving away all your money. No, you're actually getting more out of that. So for the younger generation, as you go out there, just know that um, there's a lot of gratification and there are a lot of returns in giving. Doing small acts rips you big acts. And that is very important. And it's not just about the students. It's also about the rest of us who have lived our lives, um, a significant portion of our lives. It's never too late to do what you feel you are destined to do. I'll tell you a story. Last year, because of this Hildeback Foundation uh, and the film, we were organizing a big uh, event, the birthday party, the 90th birthday party for Hilde. And this Canadian uh, gentleman writes to me, I've been I'm now used to receiving a lot of anonymous mail, you know, a lot of, because people see the film and the first thing they do is they write to me. And they want to find out this, they want to, to donate, they want to do this. Of course, I'm always uh, conscious to respond to everybody who is expressing a need to donate. But I'm also, <laughs> But I'm also anxious to respond to just everybody. I, I used to get all sorts of people um, writing to me. First of all, um, the, the, the amazing things that happened when this film happened. The, we go to Sundance, and the film is showing at Sundance, and uh, you know, the theater was packed, and you know, I was watching the film so that after the film we have a Q&A. And sitting in the audience is this man who was, who, who was holding like a severe, you know, like wiping away tears. It's Bill Gates. And he stood up and he said he had totally been moved by this. He wanted to find out what he could do. And I said, how about giving Hilda back a computer? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, it was, you know, the, the, we, we've, we've found a lot of, um, a lot of uh, support since this thing happened. And I've been responding to a lot of uh, you know, requests, you know, people telling me this. And um, another interesting thing that I got was uh, um, this guy saw the film and then wrote to me and said, Chris, this film is so beautiful. Uh, my grandmother would have loved to meet you. And I said, okay, who is your grandmother? He said, Eleanor Roosevelt. And you know, we were getting a lot of pranks. So I said, oh yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> and anyway, I said, well, here's my number. If Eleanor Roosevelt is really your grandmother, give me a call. <laughs> the guy called me. He's now on the international board of my foundation, Ford Roosevelt. He came to Kenya as the special guest for Hildeberg's birthday. So it's a story that's that's gathering its own steam. You know, we are getting a lot, a lot of this. But the interesting, the story I was going to tell was this guy from Canada who calls me and tells me, I have heard that you're organizing a big party for Hilda Back, because it was all over the web and all our social media. And he said, I would like to come and help you organize it. And I said, okay, how would you even do that? We're doing it in the village. You're sitting in Toronto. How would you even organize something in the village? He said, I really want to do it. I'm Jewish. The, Hild the story of Hilda has really touched me, and I would really like to do something. I said, we can't pay for your ticket. We can't do anything. If you want to come, and by the way, you have to stay on the side because it's a, it's a serious job we are doing, and we don't think you can manage to do everything that we are doing in the village. And he said, just give me the chance. And I said, how old are you? He said, 60. And I thought, oh, it's not just the young students that we used to get, you know, saying, I want to go and experience the world and see what opportunities are out there. And actually, when she to he told me he was 60, I got rather interested. 
I said, I thought, he has seen the world. Well, let him come. So he took a flight and came and organized one of the best receptions for Hildeback in the village. He, he has a talent in the arts and, and did a kilt that were, had pictures of all the kids that we have supported with a beautiful picture of Hildeback in the middle. And it was one of the most beautiful presents that Hilda got. She, she has it pasted in her, her living room right now. And the, the media, this was the thing that the media picked up. He spent weeks before the, uh, the, 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 the period working on this with the kids. And then after the event, I call him up and I say, okay, so when, uh, when are you going back? He said, can I stay? And I was like, well, you came for this uh, event. He said, I would like to stay in this village. I've seen that there are several things I can do. I've worked with the kids. There's a primary school here that needs help. I would like to help. I said, be my guest. He stayed for several months and then called me up. I wasn't even in Kenya that time. He called me up and said, Chris, I have decided to live here. He bought land, built a house, has started a foundation to help the kids in that village, and now he's living there. And what has happened out of this is a lot of the kids, because he has gone back to his uh, city in Canada um, and really gotten a lot of support for the kids in that village. One of the statistics that will surprise you, as, uh, especially for the students, is that Two, only 2% two of elementary school uh, schools in Kenya have libraries. Kids just don't know what libraries are. I had some guests visiting uh, from, from, from England, and I took them to a, to, a, to a local school, and they were talking to the kids. And they said to the kids, well, uh, show me your class. Of course, they showed the class without the windows and without all this. And they were shocked. And then finally they said, show me the library. And the shock in that was that the kids did not understand the concept of a library. And they said to them, oh no, the library, you don't find it here. You find it in Nairobi. And even in Nairobi, their idea of a library is actually a bookstore. They have never imagined that there's a place you can go sit down and read books for free. You have to buy the books. And of course, because they don't have the money for the books, they have never imagined that there's any other way. So that is the kind of need that we are talking about. When you hear about that, sometimes you can be put off by that and say, well, it's too much. What can I possibly do? Do what Thomas of Villanova did. Do what Hildebach did. Do what Carolyn and her friend uh, uh, Hanky Bonlander did. Do what Irving from Canada did, saying, I know I cannot change all the problems in the world. I cannot rectify all the ills in our society, but I know there's something small that I can do that can change uh, this society. So basically, I would like to um, uh, send that message, especially for the, for the young people. Now, what we are trying to do in, uh, in our foundation, because we have gotten this uh, big opportunity to um, uh, tell the story and to reach out more people, we're also scaling up on the advocacy about education. We want to, uh, our, our big uh, advocacy right now, a big campaign is on uh, uh, respecting education as a human right. So we want to make sure that we send this message and, and, and we need everybody's support. It's not just the money we need. I think the money we, 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 we have got quite a bit now helping the kids. We want people who can help us send out this uh, message to many of our governments that all children have the world over have a right to education. And I look at this from somebody who is working with the United Nations. I have been posted 
to many, many different countries by the United Nations. I have uh, been based in over 12 different countries of the world. I have seen what problems have been caused by lack of education. A lot of the conflicts that you hear about at the beginning, uh, Father Peter took us through a prayer and talking about the end to violence, end to conflict. A lot of the world's conflicts can be cured if we give our children the right to education. And I'm telling you that because I have seen it. I have seen children in Sierra Leone carrying big guns and joining rebellions, fighting for causes they do not know and will never understand. But just because somebody has led them into thinking that that is the best way that they can earn a living. And because life presents no other alternatives, sadly, they believe it. And so, if you give these kids education, you give them options. You give them the ability to uh, go out, like uh, my colleague here has, to get further education and to get a chance to go back and change those societies from which they come. So, the issue of education is key to me. I have done a lot of uh, human rights work, but the more work I do in human rights, the more convinced I become that if we address the issue of access to education, and access to quality education, then we shall be dealing with a bigger societal issue, which is uh, solving our conflicts, solving the violence issues, and, 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 and bringing about development. I believe that a big part of um, development is missing because a big chunk of the population has been marginalized because of, and, 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 and therefore they are not part of the workforce. And that is what we see. That is what you see when you, when you go to um, countries where there are conflict. You see all these kids, young men, with their hands in their pockets. They have no future. They have absolutely no hope for anything. And the moment you go to them and tell them, I want to start a rebellion, we want to overthrow the government, they run to you without knowing what a government even is or what a government is supposed to be doing because they do not have options. But we, through our small acts, can give them um, uh, options. I'm not saying that we, we, can, we can change the problems of this world, but I'm saying that through a multiplicity of small acts, we can bring about societal development and we can end most of the issues that ravage our world today. Thank you very much.